Chapter Eight A of Considerations on Representative Government. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Considerations on Representative Government by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Eight A, of the Extension of the Suffrage. Such a representative democracy has now been sketched, representative of all, and not solely of the majority, in which the interests, the opinions, the grades of intellect which are outnumbered would nevertheless be heard, and would have a chance of obtaining by weight of character and strength of argument an influence which would not belong to their numerical force. This democracy, which is alone equal, alone impartial, alone the government of all by all, the only true type of democracy, would be free from the greatest evils of the falsely called democracies which now prevail, and from which the current idea of democracy is exclusively derived. But even in this democracy, absolute power, if they chose to exercise it, would rest with the numerical majority, and these would be composed exclusively of a single class, alike in biases, prepossessions, and general modes of thinking and a class, to say no more, not the most highly cultivated. The Constitution would therefore still be liable to the characteristic evils of class government, in a far less degree, assuredly, than that exclusive government by a class which now usurps the name of democracy, but still under no effective restraint except what might be found in the good sense, moderation, and forbearance of the class itself. If checks of this description are sufficient, the philosophy of constitutional government is but solemn trifling. All trust in constitutions is grounded on the assurance that they may afford, not that the depositaries of power will not, but that they cannot, misemploy it. Democracy is not the ideally best form of government unless this weak side of it can be strengthened, unless it can be so organized that no class, not even the most numerous, shall be able to reduce all but itself to political insignificance and direct the course of legislation and administration by its exclusive class interest. The problem is to find the means of preventing this abuse without sacrificing the characteristic advantages of popular government. These twofold requisites are not fulfilled by the expedient of a limitation of the suffrage, involving the compulsory exclusion of any portion of the citizens from a voice in the representation. Among the foremost benefits of free government, is that education of the intelligence and of the sentiments which is carried down to the very lowest ranks of the people when they are called to take a part in acts which directly affect the great interests of their country. On this topic I have already dwelt so emphatically that I only return to it because there are few who seem to attach to this effect of popular institutions all the importance to which it is entitled. People think it fanciful to expect so much from what seems so slight a cause to recognize a potent instrument of mental improvement in the exercise of political franchises by manual laborers. Yet, unless substantial mental cultivation in the mass of mankind is to be a mere vision, this is the road by which it must come. If any one supposes that this road will not bring it, I call to witness the entire contents of M. de Tocqueville's great work, and especially his estimate of the Americans. Almost all travellers are struck by the fact that every American is in some sense both a patriot and a person of cultivated intelligence, and M. de Tocqueville has shown how close the connection is between these qualities and their democratic institutions. No such wide diffusion of the ideas, tastes, and sentiments of educated minds has ever been seen 
elsewhere, or even conceived as attainable. Yet this is nothing to what we might look for in a government equally democratic in its unexclusiveness, but better organized in other important points. For political life is indeed in America a most valuable school, but it is a school from which the ablest teachers are excluded. The first minds in the country being as effectually shut out from the national representation and from public functions generally, as if they were under a formal disqualification, the demos, too, being in America the one source of power, all the selfish ambition of the country gravitates towards it, as it does in despotic countries towards the monarch. The people, like the despot, is pursued with adulation and sycophancy, and the corrupting effects of power fully keep pace with its improving and ennobling influences. If even with this alloy the democratic institutions produce so marked a superiority of mental development in the lowest class of Americans, compared with the corresponding classes in England and elsewhere, what would it be if the good portion of the influence could be retained without the bad? And this, to a certain extent, may be done, but not by excluding that portion of the people who have fewest intellectual stimuli of other kinds from so inestimable an introduction to large distant and complicated interests, as is afforded by the attention they may be induced to bestow on political affairs. It is by political discussion that the manual laborer, whose employment is a routine, and whose way of life brings him in contact with no variety of impressions, circumstances, or ideas, is taught that remote causes and events which take place far off have a most sensible effect even on his personal interests. And it is from political discussion and collective political action that one whose daily occupations concentrate his interests in a small circle round himself, learns to feel for and with his fellow-citizens, and becomes consciously a member of a great community. But political discussions fly over the heads of those who have no votes, and are not endeavouring to acquire them. Their position, in comparison with the electors, is that of the audience in a court of justice compared with the twelve men in the jury-box. It is not their suffrages that are asked. It is not their opinion that is sought to be influenced. The appeals are made, the arguments addressed, to others than them. Nothing depends on the decision they may arrive at, and there is no necessity and very little inducement to them to come to any. Whoever, in an otherwise popular government has no vote and no prospect of obtaining it will either be a permanent malcontent or will feel as one whom the general affairs of society do not concern for whom they are to be managed by others who has no business with the laws except to obey them nor with public interests and concerns except as a looker-on what he will know or care about them from this position may partly be measured by what an average woman of the middle class knows and cares about politics compared with her husband or brothers. Independently of all these considerations, it is a personal injustice to withhold from any one, unless for the prevention of greater evils, the ordinary privilege of having his voice reckoned in the disposal of affairs in which he has the same interest as other people. If he is compelled to pay, if he may be compelled to fight, if he is required implicitly to obey, he should be legally entitled to be told what for, to have his consent asked, and his opinion counted at its worth, though not at more than its worth. There ought to be no pariahs in a full-grown and civilized nation, no persons disqualified except through their own default. Every one is degraded, whether aware of it or not, 
when other people without consulting him take upon themselves unlimited power to regulate his destiny. And even in a much more improved state than the human mind has ever yet reached, it is not in nature that they who are thus disposed of should meet with as fair play as those who have a voice. Rulers and ruling classes are under a necessity of considering the interests and wishes of those who have the suffrage, but of those who are excluded it is in their option whether they will do so or not, and, however honestly disposed, they are, in general, too fully occupied with things which they must attend to, to have much room in their thoughts for anything which they can with impunity disregard. No arrangement of the suffrage, therefore, can be permanently satisfactory in which any person or class is peremptorily excluded, in which the electoral privilege is not open to all persons of full age who desire to obtain it. There are, however, certain exclusions, required by positive reasons, which do not conflict with this principle, and which, though an evil in themselves, are only to be got rid of by the cessation of the state of things which requires them. I regard it as wholly inadmissible that any person should participate in the suffrage without being able to read, write, and, I will add, perform the common operations of arithmetic. Justice demands, even when the suffrage does not depend on it, that the means of attaining these elementary acquirements should be within the reach of every person, either gratuitously, or at an expense not exceeding what the poorest, who can earn their own living, can afford. If this were really the case, people would no more think of giving the suffrage to a man who could not read, than of giving it to a child who could not speak. And it would not be society that would exclude him, but his own laziness. When society has not performed its duty by rendering this amount of instruction accessible to all, there is some hardship in the case, but it is a hardship that ought to be borne. If society has neglected to discharge two solemn obligations, the more important and more fundamental of the two must be fulfilled first. Universal teaching must precede universal enfranchisement. No one but those in whom an a priori theory has silenced common sense will maintain that power over others, over the whole community, should be imparted to people who have not acquired the commonest and most essential requisites for taking care of themselves, for pursuing intelligently their own interests, and those of the persons most nearly allied to them. This argument, doubtless, might be pressed further, and made to prove much more. It would be eminently desirable that other things besides reading, writing, and arithmetic could be made necessary to the suffrage, that some knowledge of the conformation of the earth, its natural and political divisions, the elements of general history, and of the history and institutions of their own country, could be required from all electors. But these kinds of knowledge, however indispensable to an intelligent use of the suffrage, are not in this country, nor probably anywhere, save in the northern United States, accessible to the whole people. Nor does there exist any trustworthy machinery for ascertaining whether they have been acquired or not. The attempt, at present, would lead to partiality, chicanery, and every kind of fraud. It is better that the suffrage should be conferred indiscriminately, or even withheld indiscriminately, than that it should be given to one and withheld from another at the discretion of a public officer. In regard, however, to reading, writing, and calculating, there need be no difficulty. It would be easy to require from every one who presented himself for registry that he should, in the presence of the registrar, copy a sentence from an English book, and perform a sum in the rule of three. 
and to secure by fixed rules and complete publicity the honest application of so very simple a test. This condition, therefore, should in all cases accompany universal suffrage, and it would, after a few years, exclude none but those who cared so little for the privilege that their vote, if given, would not in general be an indication of any real political opinion. It is also important that the assembly which votes the taxes, either general or local, should be elected exclusively by those who pay something towards the taxes imposed. Those who pay no taxes, disposing by their votes of other people's money, have every motive to be lavish and none to economize. As far as money matters are concerned, any power of voting possessed by them is a violation of the fundamental principle of free government, a severance of the power of control from the interest in its beneficial exercise. It amounts to allowing them to put their hands into other people's pockets, for any purpose which they think fit to call a public one, which in the great towns of the United States is known to have produced a scale of local taxation onerous beyond example, and wholly borne by the wealthier classes. That representation should be co-extensive with taxation, not stopping short of it, but also not going beyond it, is in accordance with the theory of British institutions. But to reconcile this, as a condition annexed to the representation, with universality, it is essential, as it is on many other accounts desirable, that taxation in a visible shape should descend to the poorest class. In this country, and in most others, there is probably no laboring family which does not contribute to the indirect taxes, by the purchase of tea, coffee, sugar, not to mention narcotics or stimulants. But this mode of defraying a share of the public expenses is hardly felt. The payer, unless a person of education and reflection, does not identify his interest with a low scale of public expenditure as closely as when money for its support is demanded directly from himself. And even supposing him to do so, he would doubtless take care that, however lavish an expenditure he might by his vote assist in imposing on the government, it should not be defrayed from any additional taxes on the articles which he himself consumes. It would be better that a direct tax, in the simple form of a capitation, should be levied on every grown person in the community, or that every such person should be admitted an elector on allowing himself to be rated extraordinem to the assessed taxes, or that a small annual payment, rising and falling with the gross expenditure of the country, should be required from every registered elector that so every one might feel that the money which he assisted in voting was partly his own, and that he was interested in keeping down its amount. However this may be, I regard it as required by first principles that the receipt of parish relief should be a peremptory disqualification for the franchise. He who cannot by his labor suffice for his own support has no claim to the privilege of helping himself to the money of others. By becoming dependent on the remaining members of the community for actual subsistence, he abdicates his claim to equal rights with them in other respects. Those to whom he is indebted for the continuance of his very existence may justly claim the exclusive management of those common concerns to which he now brings nothing, or less than he takes away. As a condition of the franchise, a term should be fixed, say, five years previous to the registry, during which the applicant's name has not been on the parish books as a recipient of relief, to be an uncertificated bankrupt, or to have taken the benefit of the insolvent act, should disqualify for the franchise until the person has paid his debts, or at least prove that he is not now, 
and has not for some long period been dependent on eleemosynary support non-payment of taxes when so long persisted in that it cannot have arisen from inadvertence should disqualify while it lasts these exclusions are not in their nature permanent they exact such conditions only as all are able or ought to be able to fulfil if they choose they leave the suffrage accessible to all who are in the normal condition of a human being and if any one has to forego it he either does not care sufficiently for it to do for its sake what he is already bound to do or he is in a general condition of depression and degradation in which this slight addition necessary for the security of others would be unfelt and on emerging from which this mark of inferiority would disappear with the rest in the long run therefore supposing no restrictions to exist but those of which we have now treated we might expect that all except that it is to be hoped progressively diminishing class the recipients of parish relief would be in possession of votes so that the suffrage would be with that slight abatement universal that it should be thus widely expanded is we have seen absolutely necessary to an enlarged and elevated conception of good government yet in this state of things the great majority of voters in most countries and emphatically in this would be manual labourers and the twofold danger that of too low a standard of political intelligence and that of class legislation would still exist in a very perilous degree it remains to be seen whether any means exist by which these evils can be obviated they are capable of being obviated if men sincerely wish it not by any artificial contrivance but by carrying out the natural order of human life which recommends itself to every one in things in which he has no interest or traditional opinion running counter to it in all human affairs every person directly interested and not under positive tutelage has an admitted claim to a voice and when his exercise of it is not inconsistent with the safety of the whole cannot justly be excluded from it but though every one ought to have a voice that every one should have an equal voice is a totally different proposition when two persons who have a joint interest in any business differ in opinion does justice require that both opinions should be held of exactly equal value if with equal virtue one is superior to the other in knowledge and intelligence or if with equal intelligence one excels the other in virtue the opinion the judgment of the higher moral or intellectual being is worth more than that of the inferior and if the institutions of the country virtually assert that they are of the same value they assert a thing which is not one of the two as the wiser or better man has a claim to superior weight the difficulty is in ascertaining which of the two it is a thing impossible as between individuals but taking men in bodies and in numbers it can be done with a certain approach to accuracy there would be no pretence for applying this doctrine to any case which can with reason be considered as one of individual and private right in an affair which concerns only one of two persons that one is entitled to follow his own opinion however much wiser the other may be than himself but we are speaking of things which equally concern them both where if the more ignorant does not yield his share of the matter to the guidance of the wiser man the wiser man must resign his to that of the more ignorant which of these modes of getting over the difficulty is most for the interest of both and most conformable to the general fitness of things if it be deemed unjust that either should have to give way which injustice is greatest that the better judgment should give way to the worse or the worse to the better 
Now national affairs are exactly such a joint concern, with the difference that no one needs ever be called upon for a complete sacrifice of his own opinion. It can always be taken into the calculation, and counted at a certain figure, a higher figure being assigned to the suffrages of those whose opinion is entitled to greater weight. There is not in this arrangement anything necessarily invidious to those to whom it assigns the lower degrees of influence. Entire exclusion from a voice in the common concerns is one thing, the concession to others of a more potential voice, on the ground of greater capacity for the management of the joint interests, is another. The two things are not merely different, they are incommensurable. Every one has a right to feel insulted by being made a nobody, and stamped as of no account at all. No one but a fool, and only a fool of a peculiar description, feels offended by the acknowledgment that there are others whose opinion, and even whose wish, is entitled to a greater amount of consideration than his. To have no voice in what are partly his own concerns is a thing which nobody willingly submits to. But when what is partly his concern is also partly another's, and he feels the other to understand the subject better than himself, that the other's opinion should be counted for more than his own accords with his expectations, and with the course of things which, in all other affairs of life, he is accustomed to acquiesce in. It is only necessary that this superior influence should be assigned on grounds which he can comprehend, and of which he is able to perceive the justice. End of chapter 8a Recording by Bill Borst